0: Welcome to the worship service at the Seventh-day Adventist Church in Hayward, California, a multicultural church in the San Francisco East Bay that worships on the seventh-day Sabbath, Saturday. The ministry of the Word by Pastor Paul Penno is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ to forgive sin and save from sin by his cross and ministry as priest in the heavenly sanctuary, the third angel's message in verity. Join us now as the service is in progress. At a couple of churches ago where we were pastoring when our little ones were small three or four years of age why someone in a potluck went up to my youngest and asked her are you a vegetarian such big words are sometimes difficult for little ones to which she replied i'm an adventist An Adventist is someone who believes that Jesus is going to come and visit this earth again. An Adventist is someone who believes that when Jesus comes to this earth, that he will come to rescue them. And he will take his rightful rule of this earth because he's been temporarily put off the throne, as it were, by Satan. Satan. I want to think with you this morning about what it means to have the blessed hope of the second coming it's a little bit different direction than what my title is in the bulletin Judy got it right according to what I communicated to her but I've shifted directions since Wednesday and what I want to talk with you about this morning is when Christ visits the earth what will he find look at John chapter 14 and verses 1 through 3 Here Jesus gives us an unequivocal promise. In fact, it's a promise to his disciples, but it's also a promise to all of planet earth. And in this promise is embedded some really good news for you and for me. So when he says the word you here, uh, take it to mean not only his disciples to whom he spoke back then, but he's also speaking to you. Dear heart, whoever will listen to his word here. It says, let not your heart be troubled. Don't let your heart be troubled, dear heart. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to repair a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. I would say this, when he says, let not your heart be troubled, he doesn't want us to be afraid of his coming visit to this earth. He's going to be coming and visiting an earth that's very troubled, a world that's very troubled. But dear heart, if you can read this promise in black and white, and you've opened your heart store to Jesus, then... He says, do not be troubled, do not be afraid when I come to visit this earth. And that's obviously some wonderful good news, isn't it? Anyone having no fear? Well, let me put it this way. Had you been on earth when Jesus visited the earth the first time, when he was born in Bethlehem and walked this earth, do you think that you would have liked to have been associated with Jesus and had fellowship with him? Would you like to have been his friend? Would you, been, you wouldn't have been afraid of him, would you? Well, dear friends, it's the same Jesus who's coming to visit this earth again. He hasn't changed at all. So there's no reason to be afraid of him when he comes to visit the earth the second time. For those who believe, it's easy to see how this is the most welcome, the most exciting, good news. Well, will that be the same for everyone because he's promised that he's going to visit all of planet Earth everyone who is on earth when Jesus went away there were two angels that stood by the side of his disciples there in Acts chapter 1 verses 10 and 11 and it said this same Jesus will so come in like manner as you have seen him go up into heaven well just who is this same Jesus he was a physical person after his resurrection he told his disciples to handle me and see for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see I have, so he will be he will come as a real person in a literal physical body, and he will interact with real people and in Revelation one verse seven, he says, he is coming with clouds, and every eye will see him, and they also which pierced him, so obviously those that were directly responsible for his crucifixion will be given a resurrection to witness his coming. But this same Jesus is not one with a different character because if Jesus was loving and compassionate when he was here on this earth he's going to be the same way when he comes again. The same way. Well, but what about all of those who have irrevocably rejected him? Then his love and his compassionate character will obviously take a different form for them. A different form. We'll talk about that. It would not be love to perpetuate an existence which for them would only be an endless misery, terrible existence because they have rejected him. You think about all of the... Democracies and the republics in the world and presidents and prime ministers, why in such governments they are elected by the people's wishes. But at the present time, the vast majority of people who are on this earth, when they think about Jesus coming to visit this earth, either don't know about it, number one, don't even know that Jesus is going to come and visit the earth. Number two, they don't believe it, There's a third class who don't care about it, and there's a fourth group who really don't want Jesus to come back to this earth. That being so, then why should he come back to this earth? And I'm going to share with you two reasons, big ideas, why Jesus should come back to this earth. Number one is that he is the rightful ruler of the earth he is the rightful ruler of the earth. He's been temporarily ousted by a coup d'etat that was engineered by an enemy. Who is that enemy? That's Satan. And Satan subverted Adam and Eve in his rebellion. And when Christ first appeared as the world's savior, Satan deceived God's own people into rejecting and crucifying him. But there was far more that was involved with the Jews, uh, for the kings of the earth, we are told, took their stand, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ, it says in Acts four, twenty six. Therefore, the rightful ruler of earth must return, he must take his rightful position and restore his peaceful and beneficent authority after the coup has run its course. The Lord speaks by his ancient prophet in Ezekiel chapter 21 and verse 27. It says, Take off the crown, nothing shall remain the same, exalt the lowly, and abase the exalted. It shall be no longer until he come, whose right it is, and I will give it, meaning the throne, the crown rather, to him. So when Jesus comes, he is to become the rightful ruler of this earth. And although he came the first time as a meek and a lowly one, when he comes the second time, we are told in Revelation nineteen sixteen that he will come as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. So number one reason, the big idea why Jesus is going to visit this earth again is so that he might take his position as the rightful ruler of this earth. Number two, he comes on a rescue mission. You know the earth is going to be engulfed in a terrible time of trouble. Daniel 12 verse 1 says this. And a new and unhappy development on earth is going to make Jesus' intervention absolutely necessary. There's going to be a final, ominous scene in the last act of the cosmic drama of the ages. And those who are in rebellion against God will issue a terrible and an evil decree which will have such psychological pressures and dimensions to it. It's mentioned in Revelation 13, verses 15 and 16. It says, Causing as many as would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. And that no one may buy or sell except one who has the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. In fact, at that fearful time, only a few left on earth will not be bent on self-destruction. So Christ's mission in coming will thus literally be a rescue mission of worldwide proportions, as a nation ousts a tyrannical and cruel usurper and welcomes back its true sovereign, so his loyal subjects will long and even plead for Jesus to return. And in the end, the only sane and reasonable people left on earth will joyously welcome Christ at his glorious return. The psalmist represents him as enthroned upon the praises his people throughout the history the vast proportion of the inhabitants of the earth have joined with the great deceiver in his rebellion against God and yet they have not known what they were doing the murder of Christ fully disclosed that guilt but the people who put him to death they did not realize what they were doing Christ actually prayed for them. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And so there was something that was really hidden deep down in the hearts of those that put him to the cross. There was a deep down layer of rebellion that is something that is natural to every human heart. The Bible says that all the world has become guilty before God Not only did some far-off Jews or Romans crucify him 2,000 years ago, but Paul says in Romans, all alike have sinned. We all bear responsibility. Today, we are all alike guilty of the pain that sin has caused the heart of God since its very inception. Paul says in Romans 8-7 that the carnal mind is enmity against God for it is not subject to the law of God neither indeed can be the human mind is basically alienated but for the gospel is alienated against God so throughout history the sinful cruel selfish nature of Satan has led some human beings to really act worse than animals Uh, surely in many cases the conventional mores of society and civilization have kept most of these raw forces of evil passion somewhat in control. But there have been wars, outbreaking and holocausts which have given occasional glimpses of what will happen when God's restraining Holy Spirit is finally removed from the earth or withdrawn. The indiscriminate slaughter of innocent people, Arabs by terrorist bombers that are splashed across our television screens are a stark reminder of what can happen when the Spirit of God is withdrawn from uncontrolled human passions, human nature. Such wild insanity is a foretaste of a fearful time of trouble that the Bible predicts will develop in growing intensity around the world. And Christ foretold what will prevail just before his second coming in Luke chapter 21 verses 25 through 26 it says there will be on the earth distress of nations with perplexity men's hearts failing them from fear and the expectation of those things which are coming upon the earth and in another place Matthew 24:12 it says because lawlessness will abound the love of many will grow cold and that word love is agape in the greek a love which is based on loyalty to god's 10 commandment eternal law the love of many will grow cold in many cultures around the world a faint residue of that law of agape has dwelt in human hearts for it is written that Christ is the light of every man that cometh into the world, John chapter 1 and verse 9. God has created the human conscience of everyone with a built-in moral compass. Christ is the light that cometh of every man that cometh into the world. Romans 1, 19 says the same. What may be known of God is manifest in them for God has shown it to them. So that light that is shining ever so dimly in the hearts of even pagans has been the one security factor which has continued human life, made human life possible to continue on this planet. The Apostle says that one died for all. Christ died for all. Well, that's the same as saying that if one had not died for all, all of us would be dead. 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15. And yet it seems that very few of its beneficiaries, of Jesus' beneficiaries, will even wake up and be willing to say thank you and have an appreciation for His death for them. And the percentage of those who make any acknowledgement of his sacrifice is shrinking on a daily basis. And we live in what is openly declared to be now a post-Christian age. Was Jesus' magnificent sacrifice all in vain? Will Satan take over this planet by default the same scriptures that predicted the coming of the deliverer predicted however the ultimate success of Jesus mission. Isaiah 53:11 says he shall see the travail of his soul and he shall be satisfied. Predicting the success of his mission to this earth. The apostle John tells us that he heard voices in heaven saying The kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. So according to the Bible, the human race today is standing on the verge of the final scenes of this unfolding divine drama. God will not force a solution to the sin problem, however, on us. He is the complete antithesis of being a dictator and of forcing his kingdom upon this earth. You know what dictators do? They stuff the ballot boxes in fraudulent elections, you know, and they can even overthrow elections, the powers that are behind the scenes. So unless the people freely recognize and confess the rightness of God's sovereignty, God is not going to force his rule upon them. God is not going to even force his rule upon the wicked. So God's patience must allow Satan time to unmask himself before humanity, just as he did before the universe 2000 years ago the human race must see that heaven has all what heaven has already seen when jesus was crucified 2000 years ago the utter depravity of the great rebel satan's character and how utterly unnecessary is submission to his cruel rule, rule and reign and they will do that at the second coming of Jesus. The prophecies of Daniel and Revelation chronicle the steady unfolding of that disclosure through all of the centuries since Christ. And already there are millions of thoughtful people all over the world who have recognized the issues that are involved in this war behind all wars, and they are heartily longing for the time when Emmanuel shall reign forever and ever. The personal issue must yet confront every human soul. Whom shall we acknowledge as the sovereign of our souls? Is it going to be Christ or is it going to be Satan? The good news that exposes the fallacy of Satan's false accusations against God is steadily penetrating the consciousness of humanity everywhere. Christ predicted that this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all of the world as a witness unto all nations, and then shall the end come. Matthew 24, 14. John saw the everlasting gospel being preached to every nation and kindred and tongue and people. Revelation 14, verse 6. True, not everybody will accept, but all will be brought to a decision for it or against it. And then the final battle in this great war is called Armageddon. Those who believe the good news will loyally line up on Christ's side. They are with him. They that are with him are called and chosen and faithful. Those who join in rebellion to the bitter end will also be constrained to confess. They will be constrained to confess his victory. And they will acknowledge Him to be the rightful ruler of this earth. Yes, Revelation 5, verse 13, it says, Every creature heard I saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be unto him that sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb forever and ever. Every creature. Revelation 5, 13. So, neither fear of punishment nor hope of reward will ever extort such a confession from the hearts of the wicked. It's conscience alone that can force it from their souls. The final clarification of the issues in the great controversy will require, as Paul says in Philippians 2, verse 10, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. Of things in heaven, and of things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So we're going to have two harvests that are going to ripen side by side. There will be the harvest of the earth. That's the good grain. Those who are loyal to Christ. And the other is what are described as the clusters of the vine of the earth. And these are the grapes that are fully ripened for destruction. And the angel is to thrust in his sickle into the earth and gather the vine of the earth and cast it into the great winepress of the wrath of God, it says in Revelation 14, verses 14 through 19. Those who believe... The good news will beautifully reflect the image of the character of God. That's the grain harvest. And those who persist in rebellion will at last bear the unmistakable stamp of Satan's character, and then the end can come. The glorious victory that's won at the cross will at last be realized at the second coming of Christ. The good news is that the time is very near, and it's so near that millions of Jesus' thoughtful followers around the world believe that Jesus' coming will take place within our generation. Scripture does not predict a fearful nuclear war that will wipe out civilization, but it does predict a final Armageddon conflict that will resolve for all eternity the issues of the controversy between Christ and Satan. And that is the war behind all wars, the issue behind all issues that looms in overwhelming significance behind the scenes. This is no time for fear and mourning. While unbelieving men's hearts are failing them for fear and for looking after those things, which are coming on the earth, it's time for God's people to look up and to lift up your heads for your redemption draweth nigh. But as evil men and imposters will grow worse and worse in the last days, and as people in general, their love of darkness rather than the light, the Holy Spirit as a result is gradually being driven away from the world. And the result of that is just what Jesus said that Jerusalem's horrendous desolations in 70 AD is a portrait of the world that will become when the Holy Spirit is finally driven away from our our world today. Modern man's only reasonable hope is that this enmity against God must be healed by a true conversion. Without full conversion... The individuals and the nations of this modern earth will surely act out to the full those dark passions of the multitude at the trial of Christ. They cried out, crucify him, crucify him. Then you have the enforcement of that mark of the beast death decree and that will be an attempted recrucifixion of Christ only this time in the person of his representative saints. And just think of it. The resplendent King of kings and the Lord of lords coming in the clouds of heaven, surprising his enemies in the very act. He will come to rescue those who are loyal to him, and then the moment of truth will come for all of earth's inhabitants. And the book of Revelation portrays that final scene. It says, these shall make war with the Lamb, and the Lamb will overcome them. For he is Lord of lords and King of kings. The sacrificial Jesus, who sacrificed his life on the cross, will overcome. In Revelation 19.11, it says, I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on him was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like the flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, that's his own blood, shed at Calvary, and his name is called the Word of God. That's the gospel. Out of his mouth goes a sharp sword. That's the Word of God. And that with it he should strike the nations and he shall rule them with a rod of iron. I would say to you that's the same Jesus that humbly walked this earth, only manifesting himself as Lord of Lords. It will be by the gospel that the earth will be judged. You know, for centuries, millions have endured and they continue to endure terrible wars and plagues and AIDS and crime and grinding poverty and unending fear. And no one can say that God has brought this awful load of suffering on the world. Man has done this. We, can, as tempor- we are, as temporary inhabitants on this earth, we cannot blame the government of God for bringing all of the woes upon humanity when we crucified the son and expelled him and said, we will not have this man to reign over us. Should not God be as democratic and allow this planet to go on living in rebellion against his government and against his universe? There is a ready answer. He's already done so. He still waits since the fall of man in Eden, hoping for repentance, ministering reconciliation, God has never and he cannot abandon any of his remnant people who appreciate his character of love and respond accordingly. They are the ones who are to rightfully inherit this earth. But now in this present day, God looks down upon the earth and he sees as plainly as we do that man has nearly ruined this habitat. And it's evident that selfishness and sin make human life almost intolerable in many nations of the earth. And all too soon, the terrible seven last plagues detailed in Revelation 16 will bring the ultimate culmination of human pain. But in the awful agony of those last plagues, God will compassionately grant to the finally hardened and impenitent their desire. Since God is love, He cannot permit and ever-suffering hell to mar the happiness of the new heavens and the new earth that he will restore. To allow those who are rebelliously disloyal to him to continue living in hopeless, hate-filled misery would be maintaining an endless torture. Who could live happily in the new Jerusalem with the agonies of lost souls continually splashed across their television screens? like our nightly news, for everyone in the entire universe, the second death will be seen to be finally a most welcome relief. The Lord tries again and again to save us. He is pleading in the most sublime and compassionate language, saying to every human soul, as I live, says the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways, for why should you die? Love could not be more eloquent, I don't think. Love could not be more persistent. How will the lost feel when at last they actually see the face of him whom they have persistently resisted and rejected. For those who have urged the support of the mark of the beast issue, just to look in Jesus' eyes will itself be torment with fire and brimstone. The original language expresses the idea of their beholding in a flash the awful reality of their having rejected the one who suffered hell in order to save them. And they can't stand it. The horror of their final realization of guilt tortures every cell of their souls. The Lord never intended that the sight of his loving face should ever do that to anyone. While it is true that our God is a consuming fire, it's also to sin that the revelation of his love is so destructive. Thus, if a human being persistently clings to any sin as a vine clings to a tree. The physical sight of Jesus, the Lamb who is love incarnate, must also be instant destruction. But Jesus promises that the pure in heart shall see God. They shall dwell with the devouring fire, with everlasting burnings, just as Christ walked in Nebuchadnezzar's fiery furnace, with the three Hebrew youth who believed him, so he will save those physically who have already permitted him as Savior to save them spiritually from sin. The enemy will capitulate. Even Satan himself, at the end of history, will openly and publicly confess before the inhabitants of earth and the intensely interested universe his hopeless rebellion. And he will welcome the destruction that will mean that the great controversy is finally over. And every creature, Revelation 5.13 says, which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and such as are in the sea and all that are in them, I heard saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. If every creature is every creature, that would include Satan himself. The second coming is of Christ is not the end of happiness or of ecological delight. It's going to be the beginning of a renewal of life without pain and without death, both for man and for this planet. Behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, it says, and the former shall not be remembered or come to mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. The wolf and the lamb shall feed together. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. In the final judgment, every human being will see that God could not have been more fair, more patient, more compassionate than he has been. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. And this is the condemnation that light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light. Rightly understood, the world has never heard any better good news than the glorious second coming of Jesus. Titus says, The grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. What a bargain for all men! What a bargain. This godly grace has already come to all men. It has come to you. The hardest thing we have to do is to say no to sinful temptation, but this grace actually teaches us to say no. So believe the powerful good news and immediately the second coming becomes your blessed hope. And it will not prove false. Though it linger, wait for it. It will certainly come. It will not delay. Habakkuk 2.3 At any time when he comes, the waiting will have seemed to be but a short time. Worldwide, the grace of God is working night and day to purify for himself a people that are his very own. The nightly TV news anchors may not tell us about this soon coming of Jesus Christ, but it is the most important news in the world, and it is good news. I can think of only three reasons that have been given for the delay of Jesus' coming. Number one is the Calvinist explanation That God has a great time clock of the universe in heaven and that when that time clock strikes 12 midnight then God is going to send his son down here ready or not, here I come. But I would hope that there aren't any Seventh-day Adventist Calvinists. (laughs) We are not Calvinists. A second explanation for the delay in Jesus' coming is that There are actually some who are going around saying Jesus' second coming is when the Holy Spirit comes in your life and you're born again as a Christian and Christ comes into your heart. Well, that is a secret coming, isn't it? But the Bible doesn't portray Jesus' second coming as a secret coming. It says it will be an open event for all of the universe to see. The third reason for the delay in Jesus' second coming, which is the biblical reason, is that Jesus is not going to force his second coming on this church nor on the world, except we really want him to come and visit us. And when we have really fallen in love with him and we really want him to come, and all the wicked have been given an opportunity for that same love to come in their hearts and they have resisted and rejected it, then the harvest will be right and Jesus will come. That is the true biblical reason for his delay. And we can either hasten it or delay it by our response to the message of the cross. I trust that the love of God is deepening in your hearts and that you are coming to a deeper appreciation of Jesus' death for you on the cross. So just to share with you had some communications with a dear person, they captioned the message to me, a lost Adventist. That's such a sad caption, a lost Adventist. There should be no Adventist that is lost. And reading down into the message a little bit farther, it said, I used to go to church and I was converted, but gradually I have slipped away and I just haven't been able to maintain a relationship with God, and I decided, well, I better go back to church, and then I went back, and then I've gradually just gone out, and I don't even go anymore. And three times the individual said, I'm afraid, I'm afraid, and then finally said, I'm afraid of God. So I wrote back, and I said to this dear soul, I think you've really analyzed your problem accurately and correctly, and that is that you are afraid of God. And you're picture of God is that you must build a saving relationship with him, of having enough faith and going to church enough times and studying your Bible and praying hard enough. And then when Jesus sees that you're really earnest, then he will build his relationship with you. And all of that has led you to a self-dependency. and actually an alienation of your heart against God so that you don't even want to be around it anymore a lost Adventist. Dear friends, it's only when we begin to see that it's God who has initiated the search for us. That it is God who has given a gift of pardon to each and every one of us. That Jesus took our guilt and suffered in his own body our own sins. When he died on the cross, he died the equivalent of the second death. When we see that, then it will evoke from our lips a word of appreciation, and we will say, thank you. It's not developing a self-dependence on what we do to get this relationship going. Dear friends, he wants fellowship with us, and he's trying to, in every so many ways, how can I have fellowship with hearts that are alienated from me? What can I do? What can I do? And so the answer is the uplifted Christ on the cross, the love of God, that he has initiated this great gift for you and for me. Can you say thank you? Can you appreciate that? And if you know that kind of a loving Jesus, he is the same as his Father in heaven, and you will surely look forward to his second visit to this earth and welcome him. Would you like to place your head right on the chest of Jesus like John the Beloved did on the Thursday night when he had the Last Supper? What in the world possessed John? I would try to be so straight and reserved and respectful. This is... Jesus, the Son of God, the King of the universe, I can't touch him. But John felt such fellowship with Jesus that he just put his head on the chest of Jesus. That's what I call fellowship, isn't it? But, you know, I only do that with my wife once in a while, you know. (laughs) But Jesus invites that kind of closeness and intimacy with him. And when you begin to see Jesus in that way, that he is your friend, that he loves you, then, yes, you'll put your head on his chest and you'll begin talking with him. Just like you used to do with your mother, your father, that one that was the closest to you when you truly had harmony and fellowship. God loves you. And he wants you to look forward to his coming. He's coming to rescue you as his friends. And he doesn't want to destroy anyone. Unfortunately, when they see the crucified lamb, They will see only wrath, but it's really love. But they see his love in another form because they have resisted and rejected him. But that's not our experience. We will see his loving eyes of the Lamb and be drawn to him when he comes. That's my prayer for you. I pray for you, my people, every day that you might have a different kind of fellowship with Jesus than you have ever had before, that you can see something there that you haven't seen before that will at least evoke from your lips a response that he desires, a thank you, a heartfelt appreciation. Amen. Join us again next time for the word of God which will feed the soul. I am committed to bring you the fullness of the gospel as Jesus has revealed it to us in order to prepare a people for his soon coming.